Ooh, I love the oh. video. This whole deal is, yeah, right? is sweet. I know. It's pretty nice. Are we, I, on, are we on right now? We're on. So uh, I wanted to kick it off with a gift. I brought okay. you something. Oh, please. Yeah. You ready? You ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. I got to take off my pants to get okay. it. Yeah. Oh, shit. So this is the first edition of Shackleton's book called South. First edition. Holy shit. The coolest thing about this edition is the fact that they this is the fourth edition of the first edition. And they called it the cheap edition because back then they didn't have paperbacks. Yeah. So that original book is three times the size. It's this big. Holy and shit. so the small version is the cheap edition, first edition. Right. And I mean, they're, they're this is hard to find, but that's Yeah. It. This is amazing. Yeah. This is for me, really? Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. It's got a map pull out Dude, in the back. This is fucking nuts. Yeah. Well, it's incredible because I, I was, uh, since we had our conversation mm-hmm. a few months ago, we were talking about the Shackleton expedition mm-hmm. talking about, um, Oh, I don't know, a, a whole wide variety of complex leadership things that, yeah. that people have to tackle. But, uh, and it's not, but it's an, and I've seen a lot more people posting about the Shackleton expedition since you had that it. conversation. I love it. I, I love it too, because I think that the more people that understand what happened, and I'm not even saying just from the Shackleton perspective, but it's a great book if you're looking at it, at looking at how important real leadership is in a complex environment under the worst conditions for extended period and unknown time frames. Extended, yeah, way extended, way right? extended, years. years, two years. Given the the given time travel and any scenario survival scenario that you've read about, which one would you put yourself in to experience? Oh man. It, it's going to be the Shackleton really? expedition. Well, the, the most significant thing isn't to me what happened during the surviving of the expedition. I think it's more significant that um, every single person who came back Nearly every single person, there was a couple exceptions, right. served in World War One. Yeah. Two two of the guys died on the battlefield within two months of returning. Right. And every single one in some capacity, even the guys who had disabilities, like one of the original kids that was a stowaway, he served, even though he had a, a bum leg, he was volunteering and helping. Because they launched on the day the war essentially started, that Britain declared yeah. war. And then they returned and it was still going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Britain lost almost a million people. And so they were like, hey, this is our country. We're coming back and we're serving. And so the fact they did that, I don't know, it says a lot about who they were as men in this case. But I don't like suffering in the cold, but the longevity of that experience, it probably, it did affect a lot of these guys long-term in their lives. It was just really cool. Yeah, I think... What about you? I mean, there's got to be... There's, I mean, there's some sucky survival circumstances. Yeah, well, as I, as I kind of look back on all the survival, because there's so many different survival circumstances that we've never read about, obviously. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then it's kind of choose your adventure, because I'm the same way. 
the ice and the the cold black water. Mm. I think about that when you're and you've obviously been in the ocean. The ocean is such a, a powerful object. Mm-hmm. Then when you put the element of cold and then black being unknown on top of those things with mm. rudimentary gear, you know, ice that could calve or split that you're pitching a tent on, especially as they kind of moved off and they're continuing to try to find a, a, a launch point. Mm-hmm. They're camping on each of these little icebergs and things like that. I can't imagine being in that circumstance. I can, obviously, we're sitting here talking about it, so I am imagining it. I'm saying it would be it'd be scary as shit. Like just to be point blank, that would scare the shit out of me. How are you gonna sleep? Mm-hmm. You're gonna be cold and wet all the time. So you're gonna be cold and wet and you're gonna be uh scared out of your fucking mind that you're mm-hmm. gonna land in that water and be gone. And Everything is dependent on not only your gear, but how how well your team adapts to their circumstances. Yeah, it was a leadership challenge for sure, yeah. right? I mean, what's cool is Shackleton in many cases, um, in many instances, which is reflected by academic institutions using his tactics and leadership, um, things like he identified when morale was low mm-hmm. and then he had deliberate tactics to implement um, change in the behavior where he had knuckleheads, like there's always knuckleheads yeah. in every uh, institution or group. And he would deliberately take those knuckleheads away and use them um, to be close to him in order to control that chaos mm-hmm. to not affect the overall morale of everybody else. He also put them on a strict routine yep. and they hated it. They were doing three to four hours of work a day when they had dogs, they were working dogs. Right. And so man, really a genius in many ways on um, things that we are just now integrating into business from military experiences, you know, and he's way ahead of his time. And this is early 1900s, 1919 is when this took place. Well, and I think that leaders today have, well, I'll go into that a little later. I think from a survival perspective, just looking at which survival scenario I would inject myself into, which all of them are going to suck. Uh, I think there, there's a, there's a book out several years, uh, several years old. I think it was written in like the 1970s and it was, I think it was called alone or, um, I think it was alone. Uh, it, a guy spent, almost two and it could have been two and a half months on a survival raft mm. out in the middle of the ocean. Yep. I'm familiar with that. Uh, no, adrift. That's adrift. what it's called. Yeah. yeah. Adrift. Yeah. And I, I can't remember when I read that, but that, that, that scenario to me, it stuck so firmly in my head where that you're alone. You have no team. It's up to you. You're going to be 70 plus days as you're being, in a small raft with limited fishing gear, it would suck. Mm. But I think if I'm looking to really challenge every psychological and physical perspective of myself, I think that's a, that would be it because I'm a very social person. So being alone for two months on a raft, I think would be one of the most 
physically and psychologically uh, challenging things that I could do. Yeah, I think overall in, in survival, the most difficult circumstances are the ones where people have to look inside themselves mm -hmm. to resource their morale. Right. Um, and if they don't have the discipline, if they don't have the routine, if, if they don't have the mindset, they simply will just give up. They yeah. don't have the resilience because you know you, you start to degrade when you're not getting chow, when you're not getting proper water and shelter, when you're not comfortable. And that affects your mindset, which affects your decision-making. So that show alone is a good example of that, right? Where you know the competition is they put them out by themselves right. and independently they have to self-film, but they have to survive on their own. And you see guys and gals break down because they miss their family mm -hmm. or... Um, you know, they justify checking out because they're like, well, my family now is the priority, this stupid show and game that I'm playing. Like, why would I do that? Because the time that I can share with my family is more important. Right. And they just convince themselves of that. Yeah. What do they call that? Uh, rationalizing, right? So they're rationalizing yeah. uh, their their decision and their decision to quit ultimately. Yeah. So they're in a form of denial. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. They're in a form of denial. Yeah. We've seen it. We've seen it. Uh, you see it all the way through the different courses that we go to or the selections that you've gone to. Like think mm -hmm. about how many times we've seen that right next to us where the person yeah. starts to rationalize. It's like, yeah. oh, you know, the infantry is not that bad. I've, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, I, I got I a actually, family. Yeah, I got a family. My wife doesn't want me to BSF or whatever. It's like it's you, like, you, you, think, you think about those things before you're sitting here in a yeah, bunk. Yeah, before you're like, we're a week into this. I, I was watching, uh, I've been watching Naked and Afraid with my girls. Yeah. And I, I, I really do like the, the television series because uh, one, they, they, it's, it's part entertainment, right? It's mm -hmm. not, it, alone is, you really can't capture the attention of somebody that's seven years old for an extended period mm -hmm. of time. Now again, for me, it's interesting mm -hmm. for me. Uh, but the naked and afraid, there's, you know, the different groups and there's a little bit of drama and a few different things. And the girls, uh, as, as they get older, I also want them to not care too much about their body image stuff. So they got to like yeah. see people in scenarios where they're building fires and there's men and women. It's, you know, it's blurred out, obviously. But I think it's super important for, for the kids to see just survival situations. So mm. and having women and men, both in these survival situations. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks since we've been watching this. We'll watch like a half hour every other night or whatever. They love it, by the way. Do they geek out? Do or, they geek yeah. out? They get way into this to their... <laughs> like, we, I was so proud of my three-year-old. She was on the a playground in Missouri with us. And um, she was looking at the wood trips on the playground. She's like, Mommy, we could, write, we could start a fire with these wood chips. Really So cool. that's the way... Yeah she's looking at certain wow. things, not only because of the show, but because we've been doing fire starting lessons with the kids for years. It's one so of you're the developing I, that into their, I mean, a three-year-old would never look at that no. unless they were developing that, on, you know, through their parents. I'm trying to, and I think it's such a, like fire to me is one of those things that it, it's, it's a primitive skill and it's one of our most primal and differentiating uh, we'll call it aspects of, mm -hmm. of of being human. Yeah. So we take for granted uh, 
our ability to make fire and it disconnects us, I think, from a lot of our primitive past where mm. we can just flip a switch, the fire comes on from the stove, you, you know, or you don't even use fire. People don't use fire today. Mm. They turn on the heat, they use their microwave, they go through years in in years of their lives without using fire. And the majority, I say, I would say of Americans have no ability to even make fire, right? Yeah. The most I think primitive and basic skills that differentiate us from animals is our ability to make fire, right? So I also think it's really important to teach kids, especially my, well, just for me and my kids, how to make fire because I think it connects them to their past. It it can hold their attention because it's mm. people think it's dangerous, whereas you and I both know it's fucking not dangerous in the controlled, in the controlled environment. Mm. You can teach kids how to you know make tinder and kindling and make fire and what it's like to boil water and why you should boil water it's it, it these are so fun to do we 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 did it last night and uh we roasted hot dogs you know in the backyard but we we made the fire from scratch really i was cool. using the bow drill my daughter was using the magnesium scraper and uh it's not something I think where people, um, it's not something where I think that, that people are truly going to need this skill. Uh, I think given the circumstances as an adult, you might find yourself statistically, uh, it, it's, it's an anomaly where you would need the skill to survive. So it's not one of those things where I truly think that kids are going to need to be able to start a fire to survive. However, at least they know how to do it. And it's really fun. It's this, it's this connecting through the human past, mm-hmm. through this skill that's so basic mm-hmm. that allows you to capture your children's attention span for longer than, you know, 15 minutes. And like I was telling you down there, it's like the kids are running around naked in the backyard. They're jumping in the horse trough full of, you know, ice water. And one's making a fire. And, you know, I'm shooting my trad bow and they're just they're kind of wild the way that i think wild and free yeah Yeah. i think the way kids need to be this is just my two cents on perspective as far as raising children which who the fuck knows if i'm right or wrong it's just the way i like to do it if you did i mean if you follow just the basic principles of what you're talking about that's more ancestral more primal at the core of it you can't go wrong no there's there's no there's no uh it's not like it's going to grossly and negatively affect your kids. Right. It, it's only going to benefit them. So, you know, in Utah, you could have massive temperature swings. You fall in a body of water here in the back country with no capability to make fire. And whether that's a lighter, lighter hurricane matches, sure. whatever it may be. I, I was actually interested in, I, I did a lot of corporate, I've done a lot of corporate venues where we bring these guys and, you know, uh, I took a group once to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, beautiful place, um, back in the back country of Jackson in that area. And we're doing primitive fire making, fishing, all kinds of different stuff. And you take a person who's in the city and you put them in it, this kind of environment, they're completely outside of their comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. And like just the basic principles and understanding of how, for example, a magnesium rod or flint rod works. Mm-hmm. Like I remember I walked at one of the guys and he was standing completely up. And so he had a pile of wood on the ground between his legs and he was scraping the magnesium rod 
over like five feet almost like feet above right. where the where the sticks were <clears throat> and he was scraping it down on it and he's like why is this not starting a fire i'm like interesting it's so interesting i, I mean we're uh, people often forget this we're we're parallel primates we're not mm-hmm. we're not evolved from monkey primates there's monkeys and then there's us right so we're parallel primates we've evolved out of that status you won't find many uh, i mean there there are primitive skill sets that you see monkeys do uh, which are advanced. I mean, they're cracking shells. Whether that's a, uh, you know, ant, you know, seashells, they're cracking it up open to get the the contents. But they're not making fire. And they're mm-hmm. not cooking their meat. And that preservation, that that evolution that took place. There's a reason why you stare at fire, and it's magical. We call it Ranger TV. Yeah, exactly. Right? I, I could stare at at fire for hours, and yeah. just and I'm I I just go to a really wonderful place that's very primitive. It's like hygiene for the mm-hmm. mind, you know. I love it, man. Well, it's and that's that was one of the the genesis uh, or the genesis to this idea, which was why is fire so special and consuming? When I'm the same way, when I go out and I camp, you can stare at the fire. It becomes this this point of reference for a person that almost puts you into a zen like state, especially if you're alone. Uh, if you're alone and you're around or socially around a fire, what happens is you're looking into the fire or you're looking over to the other person, you're talking and you're going back and forth between the fire and the other person, right? Not your phone and the other person. Yeah. yeah you're not taught. You're not looking at your phone. Well, most of the time you're out of cell coverage, but uh, it's the same. Like my kids will, they'll shift their attention from whatever they're doing to watching the fire. So the coals almost consume a, a, a breath, right? Mm-hmm. So they're glowing and coming down and their parts are getting black and some are getting you know, lighter. It's so fucking interesting. And I think about it in the context of we had uh, hundreds of thousands of years of obviously of, of, of development and we'll call it the human experience of development. And we're we're in the last several hundred here that we've you know got electronic devices and things like that. And actually, you can't even say we're 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 in the last few decades mm-hmm. where we've got this, mm-hmm. where there's been electricity, uh, uh, screens and things like that. We're in the last couple of decades of this, but we had at least a few thousand years of looking into fire. That's ultimately, I think, defined the human experience and the the evolutionary circumstance around fire, just, just in general, and how that has shaped human beings is so fucking relevant. And it's so important to who we are that having this connection to it becomes, for me, at least that, that was like my, my point, I guess, in teaching this. is like, we're so connected to fire. If you're disconnected from it, that you lose a portion of your humanity to a certain degree or what makes you human. And if you become too disconnected, so you're, if you're trying to jump over the evolutionary circumstance too fast, meaning we, 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 we turn the heat on, we use the microwave to cook our food. You go to the grocery store, you have your fucking groceries delivered or whatever it might be. Uh, you're disconnecting from, I think our primitive and ultimately our evolutionary circumstance too quickly. And I think that causes uh, some behavioral or psychological issues. I really do. I think it, I think it expedites certain elements to it because 
if you're always in an artificial environment, so 70 degrees inside your house, 70 degrees inside your car, you never feel the cold, you never feel the rain, you never feel what fire is, you're, you're disconnected too rapidly. And what, what does that do to the human body or the human mind if you're not feeding it what ultimately it's been, what's, what's been evolving for thousands of years? We don't know what we actually need. We actually might need to walk around barefoot in the dirt. We actually might need that just as much as we need vitamin D. Fuck, nobody can convince me otherwise because uh, from from my perspective, my kids are way fucking happier when they're running around with their shoes off. I don't know. I could be wrong. Like it could be totally, totally, uh, uh, you know, uh, hyperbole or something from me, but I love this connection and the bushcraft, like the skills of bushcraft, I think they create such a unique learning environment for kids, especially that not only adults, I should say, I'm more consumed all, all the time with just like how those little, those little brains are developing. Like I love seeing them like grab on to something and be really excited about it outside of like, um, you know, uh, uh, sugar cereal or something yeah. like TV or, or cartoon, right? Or an iPad. You guys are doing, which is something I didn't know. You guys are doing like primitive skills for kids. Yeah. We're, so, um, you know, we have a couple, I don't, I hate calling them influencers cause that's not the right word. Right. Um, I mean, we have employees that work for us. One of them is, um, her name's Amber mm-hmm. and it's uh, MS dot Amber dot L E L L E miss dot Amber dot L and Amber has started with us this whole process of teaching children through her experiences. Cause she's a, she homeschools her kids. She's got three kids. She's oh, married. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's so she's phenomenal at being an educator. She's a f- former nurse. She, right. she used to be a nurse. So she has the aptitude to educate and she does that routinely through her own behavior and routines with her children. And, you know, Kevin Estella, who mm-hmm. just left his 15 awesome. year teaching job. Awesome guy. Um, we're doing a workshop tonight and we have uh, kids coming out to that workshop. Uh, it has to do with cooking this time because mm-hmm. we, we like educating people on, you know, again, primitive processes like cooking food, you right. know, starting fires. So we, we have uh, in Heber city, the uh, advantage now of, we just got 8,200 square foot across the road. Mm-hmm. We also have a land use agreement uh, with Cafaro down the road uh, near Spanish Fork. So we have 2,500 acres. Cool. Our overland experience, our, our bushcraft courses, our workshops, we're doing them all this year. Right. I mean, it, it's, to me, the key is Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, and Eagle Scouts used to be a, a very impactful thing on American culture mm-hmm. and the youth of our, our country because of all the trials and tribulations they've been going through because of, you know, negligent human beings or who are really bad people, um, there's a void. And that void is parents don't know how to start preparing themselves, their children, or even bridging the gap, like outside of technology, like here's an iPad, here's a TV. It's like, dude, there's a whole world that you can enjoy spending quality time with your family that requires you put the phone down. Mm-hmm. And it's a, again, like you said, it's a very visceral and very tangible and impactful experience. And they don't, look, we need resources. And 
And one of the things I'm doing, I actually have a phone call today um, with uh, an LMS, a learning management system. You know, me and you got higher education online because we're too busy killing bad guys downrange. I got a bachelor's degree online that took me 15 years to get. They're a horrible LMS, by the way. Uh, Blackboard. Horrible. <laughs> yeah. uh, I took Sergeant Majors Academy. Yeah, on Blackboard. Onla- yeah, on- online Blackboard. on Blackboard. Yeah. Uh, I took a 10-hour block of instruction on military museums in the Sergeant Major Academy. It was painful. So good. Um, so we're transitioning to a lot of our education to a progressive scale of learning where you go on and you go, hey, I got 15% of being prepared here. Mm-hmm. I want to learn more. Family, instead of gathering around the television and watching some bullshit, let's sit around the, the, the computer or the iPad or the phone and take courses on bushcraft. Right. Uh, I send you a bow drill, all the tools that you need, and you take a course with Kevin Estella on how to do a primitive fire with a bow drill. It's, 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 we're trying to navigate the hybrid blend of the immersion right now of technology in people's lives, as well as giving them some tangible experience that seems more meaningful Mm -hmm. because it feels more meaningful and it is more meaningful um, because I I hate the immersion of technology without these um, left and right limits and these backstops. If we just continue on this path, you know, as well as I, it's going to, at some point, it's going to be a catastrophe, a man-made disaster that we can't recover from. Uh, Who knows what the hell that would be? AI, um, whatever it is. It's not leading to a lot of healthy things in our lives today. And that's the problem. Yeah, I don't... Well, that, but so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, you know, the, the health of the country today, when you look at it, when you look at the overall uh, psychological assessment of, of the country, where, where do you rate that as far as... Poor. Yeah. Yeah, very... And it, with, it's like a, an addict, right? An addict who when you asked them, Hey, like you, you have a problem here and you're trying to I- intervene. Mm-hmm. They don't see the problem. Right. So nobody sees it. Right. Cause they, they justify their behavior, whether it's through their cell phone or through the TV or whatever it is, there's a whole bunch of benefits behind this technology. But when there's no limitations on it because of the dopamine process of us falling intimately in love with those hits, right then we continue to do it because you know the only people who are winning are the platforms that are capitalizing on our attention. Mm-hmm. I don't like that because I don't like, like TikTok's a great example, right? People go on TikTok and you'll go into a TikTok portal. You come out of it like an hour and a half later. And you're like, where the hell was I? <laughs> <laughs> well, where you were was exactly where the psychologists and the right. behavioral um, uh, uh, you know, people who are looking at how to capture and hold your attention that's exactly where you need to be because it means more monetization for ads or whatever revenue, um, you know, process they have for, for generating their profits. So if we don't take a step back and like realize the, the detriment where, you know, I, I have buddies who have children and I've been around their children and I've literally seen them stare into their phones for eight hours yeah. with, <clears throat> with, oh, by the way, no recourse from their parents mm-hmm. who are friends of mine where I'm like, Hey, bro, it is, that, that doesn't bother you? Like, it's bothering me. And I'm Uncle Mike. <laughs> like, why is it not bothering? It's like, oh, yeah, but it's not a big, it's, it's the biggest deal. It's the biggest deal. It's the biggest deal. And that balance of kids running wild and free, that's what, that's what you have to strike the balance. It's setting limitations. Like, the same thing we do when we're, uh, oh, that dude's calling back from Idaho about the land. 
Oh. <laughs> Look at that. We'll hit that. We'll hit that later. <laughs> I mean, that dude's calling back from I- Iowa. Iowa. Oh, Iowa. Move to Iowa. So much Everyone, land. <laughs> so, much, so much land in Iowa. That's the God's country out there, so you guys. So much land. Um, <laughs> hey, I want to I run something by you because this is like, I'm always learning about preparedness because it's my field. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you educate me a lot, a lot of stuff in business and stuff. And this is something that I recently learned about um, resilience. So you know how... A lot of us in the military, we talk about like mindset's a great example, right? Mindset is a very broad topic. So a lot of people hustle mindset as a business, whatever it may be, because right. it's everything, right? But we don't have like an understanding neurologically of what that means. Right. So I was talking to a few neuroscientists, buddies of mine, and there's something, one, there's a book called uh, The Unthinkable, and uh, I'll give you the author's name a little later. I'll look it up. Um, but the unthinkable, it talks about survival stories. It's like Lawrence Gonzalez's deep survival, right? Right. Giving examples of why people live and why people die. I used to use this example of the Virginia Tech shooting. Mm-hmm. And I would use it as an example of uh, developing a warrior mindset. And, and the example I used to use was uh, in Virginia Tech, when this active shooter went to the school, he killed 32 students, including himself. And he went into the, uh, the school. He locked the doors with chains behind him. And he went classroom to classroom executing young, uh, young men and women. Yep. Horrible, tragic event. But what I noticed in the statistics of that active shooting, because I'm looking at the data, mm-hmm. is that many of them were shot in the head, close point blank range, right? meaning he was executing them. Yep. And they were hiding. You know, The protocol one for the government is run, hide, fight, which is a bad protocol to begin with. But they were hiding under, under their desk. Right. And as he was going, he would start in a classroom. And there's one recorded case that the unthinkable talks about where he goes into this uh, classroom and this one young man hides and he pretends like he's wounded or dead. And then the guy goes, person to person, killing everybody in the, in, the, in the classroom, exits the classroom and some of them are injured and he comes back and he finishes them off. And I thought to myself in this engagement uh, of talking about mindset, I said, you know, you have to have a warrior mindset because raw, right? You got to be a warrior. Right. Because if you're the 10th person in the classroom and he starts killing one person, one by one by one, why didn't the six through the 10th stand up and fight. Right. There had to be an athlete in there. There had to be somebody who was raised to be a, a warrior. And I used to use this as an example until I realized the science behind it. And my example is completely unfounded. And what I was saying was talking out of my ass, mm-hmm. which I often do, but I try to back it up with facts. What do they say? Uh, often wrong, never in doubt. That's what I am. Yes, 100%, right? <laughs> so I'm always, I'm always saying things until I prove otherwise. Right. And, and what I discovered is there's this part of this process that uh, has to do with your vagus nerve, right? Your vagus nerve, uh, and, and again, if you're a neuroscientist, realize I'm an idiot and I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about most often, but I, I talk to intelligent people, more intelligent than me, about all this science. So if I'm getting the, the, the nomenclature wrong, I apologize. So the vagus nerve, it runs from your brainstem into your guts, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this nervous system in us that's measured in what's called vagal tone. It Mm -hmm. has to do with our heart rate, with our um, our, uh, breathing rate. Right. Those two things, 
can be can measure your vagal tone, which could be a determination of your stress levels uh, or your ability to manage kind of stress, right? So you could immediately depend, depending on the circumstance, uh, measure somebody's vagal tone and go, hey, this dude's high stress. Like he's, he's completely stressed out neurologically. <laughs> so you have fight or flight. We know about that, right? Cortisol, norepinephrine, uh, which is adrenaline. And it's hijacking all your executive function to allow you to fight, flight, or flee. Right. Or fight, flight, or freeze. So I always thought that when you froze, that the tactic was you're freezing because you want to survive and you are in a elevated state called uh, fight or flight or, or freeze. Mm-hmm. But there's another component, which that's an elevated state, right? And we, you know what that feels like. It's the feeling that you get when you're about to hit a deer and you swerve to avoid hitting the deer and you get a surge of adrenaline. Yep. Um, so when you have that feeling, that's one zone that's measured in fight, flight, or freeze. But there's something that happens on the back end of that, which it has to do with the dorsal portion of your vagus nerve, which is diaphragm down, mm-hmm. which what it does is it, it, it is a faint collapse or paralysis state of survival. The greatest example of this is a gazelle is trying to outpace a cheetah or a lion and it knows its ass is literally going to be eaten out. It it has no chance of surviving. It's juking left and right and it's being overcome. It's in an adrenaline state. It's running and it realizes it's going to die. Its last ditch effort is to go in this state of collapse, the state Mm -hmm. of fainting, the state of paralysis. Because in in the animal kingdom, also in our primal world, an advantage would be if you pretended to be dead or weak or broken or hurt or injured or sick, then the pr- predator potentially would bypass you mm-hmm. because it thinks that you are uh, filled with or ridden with disease. Right. So it won't touch you. And there's actually cases in the animal kingdom where this takes place, but it, it exists in us. So when you have somebody who's adrenaline pumped and they know they're going, um, they're trying to survive when they know they can survive because a guy is going classroom to classroom killing everybody or because you're being uh, herded into a concentration camp Mm -hmm. and you're standing in line for the furnace or you're in a line about to be beheaded by ISIS, then you notice that the faces of those, which is, and I give you those examples because there's historical references for their behavior. They're in a state of paralysis. They're in a state of a, a parasympathetic state, mm-hmm. not a sympathetic state of elevation, which is a, which is, by the way, is a mobilization tactic for your body to move, to survive. You're the complete opposite. You're immobilized. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but you're also neurologically, physiologically surged with opiates to disassociate from the trauma you're about to experience, mm-hmm. even making the process of living to dying mm-hmm. easier. So when I talk about those human beings that are in that state, they don't have an option, right? They've already checked out. And actually the example that this author, and her first name's Amanda, I can't remember her last name, um, in The Unthinkable, the example that she used was this, was this young man who hid because he was pretending to be dead. By the way, he was the only one who survived. And at, at some point, he actually thought he had already been shot, but he couldn't feel any pain because his legs were numb when he began to move because all of the chemicals, the opiates that were dumped in his system. Insanity that we don't talk about that Mm -hmm. because when I think about the band of resilience, it's a band. Mm -hmm. It, 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 it 
separates the segments of uh, sympathetic, fight or flight or freeze, and the state of paralysis and quitting on yourself. So then I look at a band of resilience and it's like, how can I avoid putting myself in a neurological, physical state of paralysis because I think I have no other options? So that band of resilience, my objective, whether it's writing a book, whether it's talking and training and looking at different ways of building that, is to figure out how we make it so people don't transition into that too early yeah. and give up before they even had a chance to fight. Right. Super interesting. No, it is really interesting because I, I, I can remember distinct places in my life where you've seen it. Right? Combat. You, yeah, exactly. People in the fetal who are trained operators that are like, you're like, why are you there? Or why are you froze? Like I, I would yeah. see this one where it was just like, dudes just lock up. And you could see it either, you know, I remember distinctly, like I remember seeing it on a rooftop going, what? okay, time to, time to get back to work. So like, let's go, buddy. You know, and, and that's when you go hands-on, right? You remember that? Yeah. Where you'd be like, especially with Indige, you're yeah. like, let's go. Come on. It's time to wake up. Let's go. You're going to go over here. I'm going to put you over here. You need to point that right, right off to your left. This is your sector of fire. But you remember this. Like, remember that. And I, I remember distinctly thinking this, is that, Senior NCOs would talk about this a lot where they would say, this is your sector of fire. You know, you're going to, you're, you're from here to here. You're from here to here. You're from here to here. It was always with a, hey, like a hand and communication, Mm. right? And it was like, wake the fuck up. This is your sector of fire. I can't give you too much because the other thing is, is you have, if you have too much coming at you, I can only give you a little piece of this because if you have too much, is that going to overstimulate you? But only for right now, right rifleman number one, mm-hmm. I need you only to concentrate yeah. on this sector of fire. And the only thing I need you to do is shoot back. Yeah. And I'm going to train you how to do this. So you're at least trained and coherently uh, capable of uh, what we'll call it react to contact in a way that's like what happens if you, sh- if you get shot at. You're going to do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. And we're going to keep it simple because I can't give you too much. But as a senior NCO, as you start to increase your awareness, you start to increase your training, you start to increase your experiences, mm-hmm. and you can handle more. And I've looked at that so many times as far as like the, the um, how complex the battlefield became. Mm-hmm. And you think about your first engagement. Like I remember my hands went numb for sure. I remember mm. that fucking plain as day. Yeah. Like my hands went numb because I was like, what the, f-? and I was talking and I was coherent, but my hands went numb. And yeah. I remember after going, this is weird. Yeah. Why are my fucking hands numb? Oh, because I had such a fucking dump of adrenaline that I've never had in my life before that point. I'm just surprised that my, that's the only thing that happened that my fucking hands went numb. Right. Yeah. I had auditory exclusion. My first one, right. first gunfight. I'm on a 50 cal shooting at a point of origin. Because we just got 107 millimeter rockets. Right. My butthole was inside out. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking I'm going to die. And then afterwards, I was like, I, I still have my hearing. And I never had a hearing pro on. No. And it's bizarre. It's bizarre. But then we condition ourselves, right? So as it goes on, you're like, go, 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 go. And you're like, oh, you're my, like, God. oh my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you get used to it. Yeah. And then you're solving more complex problems. And you, and you get kind of inundated with these experiences. And now you can actually see the battlefield more coherently. Mm. And I used to think about that all the time because you would see guys in the shoot house. That's where you'd see it. Mm. You'd see it 
first in the shoot house and you, you could identify the guys that were going to lock up, right? Like vapor lock. Because if you're vapor locking in the shoot house, there's fucking no doubt you're going to vapor lock on target. There's fucking zero doubt. Yeah. If you're going to do it here against simunitions, you're going to do it downrange. Sure. Saturated. Yeah. Yeah. And I would see it on the catwalk all the time. At whether it was Cefalc or whether it was the, the course that we, the contracting we stuff. Yeah. yeah. I would see it with guys that were really experienced operators where they would sit in a fucking hallway and they would just not know what to do. Mm. And it's not that they didn't know what to do. They weren't doing anything because they felt that that was the right decision to, to make at that point. And you'd come down and you'd be like, what? why weren't you doing anything? Mm. You're like, what do you mean I was doing something? And they'd get in an argument like a tit for tat. And you have, that's why we started videoing guys mm-hmm. because you'd have to show them, dude, you made entry. You didn't, you, when you made entry, you stood in the doorway and you didn't collapse your sector of fire. And they would argue with you and they'd be like, fuck you. There's no way I didn't make entry and collapse my sector of fire. It's like, you did. That's exactly what you did. I'm standing right over you. I'm telling you, yeah. that's my exactly only job what you is did. to look at you doing that and not doing that. You would, that's why we started videoing guys mm-hmm. because they would argue with you. And I realized too, and it was really in the shoot house that taught me a lot of this was you would have guys in gunfights and that's why there's so many different perspectives from gunfights as well because you would have guys that were in the same gunfight or the same target doing basically a parallel mission that you are and you would have very different uh, stories from what would happen. Because I'd heard stories from things that that I was involved in. I was like, what? That, that wasn't that bad. What are you fucking talking about? Like, <laughs> are you crazy? Like, that's crazy too, that's right? crazy. Like it, on the same line. Yeah, on the same vehicles, yeah. in the same on this on this in the same fucking, you know, convoy. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? That's wow. not but that's what you took from that? Mm. Like, yeah, that's what I took from that. You're like, but I didn't take that at all. And then you would be on a different scenario and a different target, and you're like, man, that was fucking intense. And somebody else would be like, What? What are you talking about? Yeah. It wasn't fucking we, intense. That was nothing. That was nothing. Yeah. And you're like, but the more of those, the more experiences you could kind of fold into your experience bag, right? So it's like that wise operator. It's not just the guy that's been to, a, and, I, and, and to, to, to kind of convert it back into the civilian space. It's putting yourself into training scenarios for preparedness. It, I think it does allow you to move through what you're classifying. What, what, what was the vagal, vagus response? Vagus nerve. Vagus yeah. nerve. Yeah. I think what it allows you to do is um, it allows you to coherently intellectualize and react what's happening because, and we talked about it all the time in the, we'll call it the consciously competent because you have the, the phases of competency, right? We, I think you and I've talked about the phases mm-hmm. of competency where you have um, you're incompetently, you're, you're, unconsciously incompetent of something you don't know anything about, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you don't know anything about it and you're blatantly incompetent at it. And then you become consciously competent or no, consciously incompetent. So then you're thinking about it, but you're still fucking it up. And I There's always talk about it. it. Yeah. So it's like driving, right? It's like driving a manual transmission. When you've never driven before, you're you know unconsciously incompetent. You've never tried it. There's no way that you can be coherently competent. 
Then you move into consciously incompetent. So you're thinking about it, but you're grinding gears, but you can't take on any advanced scenarios. There's just no way because the only thing you're concentrated on is timing with clutch and your, you know, gear shifting, right? So you get too much going on. So you're consciously incompetent. And then you slide into consciously competent. So you're thinking about it, but you're getting it right. And eventually, eventually you slide into uh, unconsciously competent. So then you've slid that skill over into more of your subconscious. And that means you can drive down the road at 80 miles an hour, drinking a Coke and, you know, jacking off, right? On the gram. Yeah, on the gram. But when you think about it in preparedness, most people are, they're unconscious incompetent. So you're asking people that have never driven a car to get behind the wheel at 80 miles an hour on hairpin turns. You know, you're, you're asking basically an untrained driver to get into a fucking rally car in the winter. In the winter. That's what you're asking and mm-hmm. to survive, mm-hmm. which is an unreasonable request of most logical people. It's not, it's not possible. So an active shooter scenario, I guess, would, is, is one, one thing I'm, I'm applying that is if you've never been in a high-stress scenario with the expectation to survive and fight back or be able to react appropriately, what you're asking of people is to dump an untrained driver into a professional rally course in the wintertime instantly. Mm-hmm. And you're asking them to react appropriately and not only survive, but thrive which is an inappropriate ask, I think, of most people. But I think most people want to pretend that the boogeyman doesn't exist, right? Because they live in this really comfortable bubble where nothing bad is ever going to happen. You know, Uncle Joe, he's going to take care of all of us, right? We're going to, we're, 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 we're going to, uh, you know, um, build a, a, a structure of social justice warriors that are going to respond to every scenario in the United States and everybody's going to get the equal pay and all those great things in the United States that I think that we're, um, we're probably on par at least thinking about, but most people want to pull it, pull the covers over their, their heads and pretend that the boogeyman doesn't exist. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, you can either choose to be a victim because I think that's what people are doing. If they understand that violence does happen and not only violence, but emergency situations could be like changing a fucking tire or lighting a fire when it's cold. Just knowing that those things can happen and then identifying that and then going out and doing something about it, doing something about it so you're not a victim. So you don't become a statistic. Like don't become a statistic. And my, from my perspective, I think that's just kind of part of being an adult, I guess, is like identifying the fact that bad things can happen do your best to mitigate against those and then ultimately try not to be a statistic. I don't know. I could be wrong. No, you're right. I mean, that's, it's, I hate like even the idea of um, carrying a pistol, mm-hmm. right? There's so many people in the United States that are uncomfortable with the idea of carrying a pistol. And I get it. Cause I, I think I remember the first time as a young man in the infantry, you know, wanting to carry and right getting of age to be able to carry. I was like, Ooh, am, am I going to put a round in this chamber? Is that a right. thing? Yeah. Um, but when you start evolving and learning, uh, whether it's gun handling, safety, whatever that is getting more comfortable with a pistol, then you have to just ask yourself a, a very simple question. And, and it and mostly it applies specifically to women. If you're a 120 pound woman and 
you have to protect your children against a 200 pound maniac right. who's hell bent on raping and murdering you. And I hate to even say that out loud, but that's the reality of things that happen in our country, uh, in most countries across uh, the world. Then what is your defense tactic in order to address that threat? And if the solution to equalize that scenario is a pistol with 900 to 1100 feet per second, and you had to ask yourself the question, could you live with yourself knowing that you could have done something about it, but you didn't? Man, I mean, that's a very easy thing to answer. And, th- and then I, what I tell people is, get your fucking head right. right. Because the reality is, if you've just figured that out, navigated that th- in a rehearsal in your brain, then you've figured it out, the solution. Get your head right and get your shit together and start formulating a plan. Go to the gun store, start, I mean, pay attention to credible trainers, the Kyle Lambs of the world, and let's focus on getting better prepared. And then that way, you'll never have to worry about asking yourself that question and you'll never be a victim. You'll, you'll be the good highlight in, in the story versus being the statistic, which is just a whole bunch of numbers of a whole bunch of really good people who've been killed by a whole bunch of <clears throat> shitty people. You're exactly right. And I think that if more people would do that with it, one, they would take the proper steps to not only to educate themselves on proper firearms handling, uh, and then I would say scenario-based training, right? So it's it's not only how to carry, but it's also how to utilize the weapon in the in the scenario. Because you have to take the next step. You can't end your 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 search for competency with just getting a a a ticket to ride, so to speak, a permit to carry. You have to continue the evolution or the search for additional knowledge because of what you just talked about with the 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 person's ability to freeze. You have to work your way through that. And the only way I've ever seen a person be able to work their way through that is through scenario-based training. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I've ever seen it work. That's it. I've never been able to see a even what we'll call it uh, uh, military guys that have been through a ton of non-scenario-based training, which a lot of the infantry units before 9-11, that's basically what they're doing. They're going out and shooting targets at longer distances, you know, doing some blank fire drills and things like that. But they really weren't in hardcore scenario-based training. Mm-hmm. They still had a higher statistic, I believe, of, of we'll call it locking up. It wasn't until I, even in, with, I would say, soft, and the genesis of their training until much later, until simunitions came around, where you could really push the envelope and see. I knew I, I saw it in myself. Mm-hmm. Like the guy that went to combat in 2003 before a bunch of scenario based training, and the guy that came back to combat in 2006, 2007 after doing hundreds of fucking runs in the house, getting shot at and shooting people with simunitions, the world was slower. Mm. It became slower. I could mm-hmm. read things more appropriately. It just became easier to function and live. Now, everybody doesn't have this the the ability to go through you know hundreds of iterations of scenario based training, but even just a few teach you. It will teach you how to one control your adrenaline and even putting yourself into places where you have to control your adrenaline. That was one of the things that I tried to do early before combat was. I would go climbing and whitewater kayaking and 
put myself into scenarios where I knew I was going to have to be controlled as far as I'm going to have to work my way through an environment, solve problems, and also be scared out of my fucking mind. You're self-stress inoculating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to. So I, I just don't see... Well, I, I think there's a stigma too. I, and you could be... I, I hope you're debunking it because I think you are debunking part of this stigma, which is one of the things I really like about what you're doing is, you know, to be a prepper, there's kind of a negative stigma, I think, from a lot of people out there because they think crazy, like QAnon or something, right? That's where they go instantly versus making the skills fun and injecting those into your life and saying, no, you can actually thrive and be a better human and be a better, more productive participant in this beautiful country that we live in if you just know a few other skills. And it can be really fucking fun, by the way, which I love what you're doing because I think there's so many people out there that it becomes more of like the doomsday perspective as to you got to get a bunker and you got to have three years worth of food. And they're always thinking about these crazy scenarios versus, oh, hey, let's make this really fucking fun and cool. And oh, by the way, we also have the reality of this situation. Um, because I, I think that's what I've seen over the last few years. I, I watched a ton of your guys' stuff. I love the, the primitive skills and the, all the other things that you're bringing to the table. I mean, the fishing, the hunting, like all the stuff that you guys are doing up there, it's fucking awesome to see. Because, well, one, I'm into that shit. So it's like partly, you know, my bag. But have you seen that from, from your business perspective? Have you seen that as you're evolving it, have you seen more people being turned on to the skills themselves and being less of a, is it been, is it, is it less of a stigma than it used to be? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we use the Trojan horse method of, right. hey, recreation is a Trojan horse for all things preparedness. Because right. if you're a hunter and you're not thinking about survival contingencies, making a fire, shelter, uh, even signal, um, those basic skill sets of land navigation. If you're an overlander and you're not thinking about the same plus first aid right. and all the considerations, fuel and you know mobility considerations. So we have all these cool little recreational aspects to make it a lifestyle. Because I, I don't think... Like, I don't think preparedness could ever be a hobby because the hobbyists will go to Walmart. They'll buy a piece of shit kit right. full of crap that they've never opened. They'll throw it in their trunk and they'll say, I'm prepared. Right. Right. And then when that, when the uh, bad man-made or natural disaster happens, they realize it's a big bag of shit and they typically learn a hard lesson mm. versus the person who's like, you know, Shameless plug for sportsmen's sure. Cabello's and Bass Pro. You go somewhere where there's high quality equipment and gear, and then you buy the right kit, and then you buy into the culture, you take the class, and then you realize, oh man, this is an immersive experience. The whole family can get involved yeah. in this. And I love that idea. Cause look, I'm one, I hate fringe actors, right? I hate people who are trying to be edgy off like they're just being extreme mm -hmm. because typically it's a gimmick, right? But when you have people who are looking at things and they go, hey, let's, let's apply logic and common sense and, and we don't have to be extreme. Let's, let's go out overland. Let's do a survival course. I like the, the scenario-based stuff. Um, we included simunitions. One, there's two companies that are legitimate in the space for this. 
simulations and UTM. Mm -hmm. I bought a $120,000 simulator that's in my uh, warehouse space to train civilians on stress inoculation and scenarios that's effective. It's proven effective. We bought 25 Sims Glock 17s. How to get the permission from Glock and Sim munitions to be able to run this. And I'm talking to the, thanks to Tony Blauer, who is doing scenario-based training at our place this last weekend. I'm talking to UTM this week because I'm building a civilian military law enforcement shoot house complex, 8,000 square foot to give, I'm not giving, I'm not just concerned about tactical entities. That's a thing, but I'm concerned about single moms, uh, families, children. What's the scenario when the door gets kicked in and you're by yourself and you have to move to a weapon and defend your life Mm -hmm. and let's rep it. Let's yeah. see where it ends. Uh, you know, let's see where it uh, gets us and then let's build a foundation and then get you better. When, when you were training me in contract and I won't go into detail about stuff because I know that some of it's sensitive, but I remember one of the scenarios and you might remember it. You, you've trained hundreds of people, but thousands of people. When I went through, the easiest thing to do in special operations is be a member of a team, mm. a collective task of close quarters battle where you're an individual, but you're collectively managing a, a, a scenario or a, a problem of angles, mm-hmm. right? Very easy to do when you're walking towards a breach point and you have one sliver of the pie. When all your teammates that you trust, because you know their families, you know their competency, you don't have to pick up any other slivers of the pie. So you're, you're narrowly focused. Well, when I went into contracting, because you're a singleton, a, a true singleton in some cases, with just you and your capability, and you strip all that away, then you feel naked and afraid, right? right? And now you're like, oh, well, wow, I have to carry, I have to cover this 360. The first scenario I went into, I ran into the house dynamically and, and, and uh, you know, things are in slow motion. I, I, I've taught this before and I'm comfortable in the house. And a dude in a blower suit kicks in the door and I stitch him up as per my SOP. My SOP that I was operating in in, in my military unit. And I, I smashed this dude. And then it gets done. And they're like, so uh, you, you killed this guy and came in the room. Like, why'd you do that? I'm like, oh, well, he kicked in the door during an active shooting and I stitched him up. Like, he didn't have a gun. I'm like, does he need to have a gun? I'm like, wait, let, let's <laughs> wait, do an ROE. Right. So, like, give me my ROE again. Yeah. It's like, you can't do that. I'm like, but it's an active. Sh- okay, I get it. Oh, this is different. This is a different game I'm playing. What I realized in that scenario is outside of the military and special operations and what we did overseas, civilians are operating in a semi-permissive environment Mm -hmm. at all times. Yes, the likelihood is less likely than a Yemen or a Pakistan. But when you're a civilian, you're a singleton. So all the tactics that you need to think about as a person, as a mom, a mama bear. Yeah. They need to be honed in your ability to um, selectively and narrowly focus on the things that are going to give you the highest statistical probability of success, knowing that some things are going to drop. And I think I I even learned from you, look, when you're in the house and you're an individual, you can't cover everything. And you see dudes who would literally paint the walls and run in circles because they're like, but but wait, they're spinning. And you're like, listen, you have priorities now. And, and what your priorities in, in these solutions, we're going to give you the highest probability of success, but you're going to have to drop things. All of those translations translate in many ways to civilians' abilities to, to 
essentially live. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be this scary thing, but you're right. It has to be scenario based. Uh, that's the only way you could, which is why we've, we've actually moved to that model. Yes, there's a time and place for technical reps and mm-hmm. building skill sets. But most often what you'll see uh, in our courses, Decision Point, um, some of our courses that we're running now with simunitions is the wheels come off rapidly, very quick when you're put into a, uh, a real life situation where you had a plan and immediately when you got punched in the face, that plan went to shit. And now you have to adapt through the scenario. And, and again, adaptation is the number one characteristic of somebody who's more likely to survive. Mm-hmm. Not, not what school they went to, not what uh, tactics they know, um, n- not even what competency they have in their job and special operations, but their ability to adapt in real time rapidly through a stressful situation. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I think about that all the time as far as how do you teach uh, adaptability, right? How do you teach this complex problem solving, split decision making? And I think obviously, you know, my life up to this point is, is kind of um, given me the experience that I, I, I continue to, to, to access as far as, oh, this is what I've seen. This is what I've seen, what works. Uh, but I'm always kind of looking at that as far as teaching adaptability to the kids or, you know, even within my own family or the company, having people uh, being able to just adjust their plan on the fly. I'll do things with, the, uh, you know, I'll do things with the family and my wife, if she was listening to this, she's going to, the jig is up, I guess, where I'm just like, Hey, let's, let's, let's just wing it. Let's go. Come on. Let's figure it out. Yeah. We'll figure it out on the fly. Spontaneity. Hey, yeah. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? We're going to get a fucking hotel room. If it doesn't work out, like wherever we're going, what we're going to have to pull in and get a hotel room or, Oh, or the worst things is, Oh, we're going to have to sleep as a family in the truck somewhere because we just didn't get, get to where we were going. I can think of a lot worse things in life than, mm. you know, sleeping in the truck with your family because you didn't get to where you were going, right? Mm. It's not a big deal. Mm. The big deal, I think, is, or the bigger deal, I think, is not having the psychological resilience to just be able to do that on the fly as a family. So when you're working through even the scheduled circumstance of the day with your kids, like we all have our cadence in life, right? We, uh, especially as, as a lot of very successful, I think mothers or households are run on a schedule, right? It's like seven thirties breakfast, eight thirties getting ready for school, you know, nine, nine forty five or eight forty five. you're out the door, you get back, you get lunch, everything's on a schedule, like trash canning the schedule and just going with whatever comes at you, the way that it comes at you and being spontaneous to what you're referring to. That's also, I think, something that you have to kind of build in to your skill sets because if your kids don't have the psychological resilience to do that and just be able to adapt on the fly, and I see it with my kids all the time, it's like, what are we doing? Let's, let's jump in the truck. Let's go, to, let's go do this for the afternoon and just letting them go for three or four or five hours on whatever the hell they're doing. That, to me, is, is a skill in its own. And I, I don't know how... I think what you guys are doing up there, I think it's probably one of the the best, if not the best, series of skills that you can you can kind of build, not only internally as an individual, but also you can kind of 
you, you kind of pull the thread and you can see a bunch of other cool people doing a lot of other things. Uh, the fact that you're here, it's fucking great. And I mean, I think that it's, it's one of those things I continue to look at what you guys are doing. The things I look forward to, um, the children's book, like I'm really looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully you'll do a book one of these days. Yep. Right. Uh, and then I think, uh, outside of that, this, this primitive living stuff is fucking rad, man. Like I, I want to see like the things I want to see really badly, uh, are you guys doing these like family experience based things that are, are like goat packing 101 or they're coming. Yeah. Are they coming? Yeah. 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 I think the, what, what you were talking about too is, um, look, I think you have to be a master of chaos to be an unconventional green beret. Right. And that is very well trained and bred into us. Mm-hmm. And guys like you, I think guys like me who are creative, right? We grow up, we're into art, we're into books, we're into a lot of different things. We're, we're into evolving cre- creatively. Right. So when you take an opportunity for somebody like you to thrive in an environment where you can create your own doctrine, right? And, and, and operating in chaos, it stems from actually a, probably the indigenous experience and culture mm-hmm. because Americans are comfortable with doctrine, right. which means they're comfortable with routine. Uh, scheduling, we thrive in discipline. But when you start cutting that away because of other people's culture, you have to quickly adapt in those cultures. And, you know, you show up and the guy's an hour late and you're like, why are you an hour late? It's like, well, that's how we roll. Right. But what do you mean you guys have a bartering system? Isn't that corruption? No, that's just called a bartering system. <laughs> um, oh, you guys are here and you guys got to take a break during a gunfight to, to pray? Okay, well, I guess we'll figure that out, right? So you become very good at operating in seemingly chaos. And what I've realized, in, in especially in business, is given the fact that I've lost a lot of people recently is they're uncomfortable with chaos. Mm-hmm. They can't function without routine. And what, what I've, what I've realized that routine gives you is it gives you a benefit of optimizing your time mm-hmm. in a way. Most people, they, they're not optimizing their time because they're inefficient, but it gives you a feeling of that. So then when you have to adapt, it feels like you're exposed. And then that exposure feels uncomfortable and then people can't adapt to that change. What we're talking about as well is exposure. Like we run a resilience course. We just had a course called Breakout. That's like mini Robin yeah, Sage. That's a, that's what I wanted to ask you Dude. about. Was like, oh what God. what is that? Because I, I only saw. Don't ever go. Don't ever sign up for it. <laughs> okay. Sign up for resilience, <laughs> which is the higher end <laughs> version, the gentleman's course. But Breakout is an exposure experience right. because the concept in exposure is if you want to become more resilient, you have to be exposed to things that you're not comfortable with. Yeah. For, for many people, it's just going camping and not being able to wash your ass right. or brush your teeth or sleep in your cozy bed. That alone creates this experience where you leave that and you go, I either am addicted to that now and I want more of that and you seek it or you're like, I'll never do that for the rest of my life. And then you go back into your you know, hidey hole of complacency. Mm-hmm. So breakout is like a mini Robin Sage. Look, I hired, I mean, Kevin Owens ran a a wonderful course and the team ran a wonderful course, but we did things like we took them to the Petzl headquarters down here in Salt Lake City and they did roping 
they did, they had to overcome their fear in heights because it's a massive tower right. where they had to repel off these massive uh, uh, heights, even the rooftop. And then I hired Sean Kirkwood, who's in our circle, who used to run as the NCIC, the non-commissioned officer in charge of the RTL, of the <laughs> Camp Slappy at Sears School. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm just going to say he, he ran a little lab. Okay. And, and those guys walking away from that experience, I talked to one of my buddies, Greg, who was in the course last night at dinner. And he said, dude, it's the most impactful course I've ever experienced. Really? And the camaraderie in five days, right. suffering in silence with nobody to virtue signal to, mm-hmm. nobody to post and text and hashtag to, right. built a bond between them like we've seen built in combat mm-hmm. and in war and in training. And so- uh, you know, outside of preparedness, technical skill sets, there's a whole thing that has to do with exposure that builds resilience and mindset, which makes you better prepared. I mean, if, if, if guys aren't, and gals aren't looking at their physical preparedness, their mindset, their resilience, their self-awareness, their situational awareness as a start point before they buy the sexy gun, you know, that's $3,000 yeah. and serrated. Like, come well, that, on. That's a huge issue, Mike. Like I see that all the time Crazy. where it's like, how do you break people out of this idea that your your pistol, the, the, the better gear that you have is not going to, it's not going to substitute for the fucking skill. It's like, you're a way more dangerous person with a fucking high point than the average person with, you know, an STI with a fucking RMR and, a, you know, a flashlight on it, right? You're, you're, you're in the category of a fraction of a percent with... Actually, I would say a muzzleloader. I have a six-shot thirty-eight special revolver <laughs> right. in my fanny pack yeah. that I bought. But that's um, a, but that's yeah. the point is, how do you guys in, emphasize this? You know, it is mindset, it is skill, it's about building your knowledge base. It's not about your kit. I mean, your kit's part of it. It has to enhance your skill set, absolutely, but it can never replace your fucking skill, like. And that's the thing that I, I wrestle with all the time where I, 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 I see people and I talk to, you know, obviously a ton of people here at Black Rifle and, and the community of people. It's like, I want, what kind of pistol do I want to buy? I'm like, more importantly, the question you should be asking yourself is where am I going to take my training course? Where am I, who am I going to in order to seek knowledge? Because there's a lot of apostles out there, what I'll call is like tactical fucking apostles that know fuck all about what they're talking about. Just so everybody's clear, like they know nothing. Yeah. And there's a small handful of people that you can really rely on out there in the ether web. They have a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, do you guys, when, when my question is when you guys field those questions, cause I'm sure you get that question probably a hundred times a day. What pistol should I buy? Right. Is that, do you guys have a definitive answer? Or are you guys saying, well, what, what, what kind of training do you have? What kind of background do you have? Uh, what's your background first? Or what's your lifestyle? Are you kind of fielding those questions first before you go into that? Yeah, so the, that's exactly right. Like the, if somebody asked me that, in fact, we just did a YouTube video on it with Amber uh, where we did this mock scenario. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you're in this area or, or even not in this area, um, my store in Heber City is not a gun store. The, bet, the reason I deliberately didn't, I, I have my FFL SOT. The reason I did not do that is because Neil and Casey at Ready Gunner, that's the best gun store you're going to get, mm-hmm. right? Um, cup of coffee, get the best gun for a concealed carry and get the classes to yep. bear. That's where I recommend everybody go. 
So we did a mock scenario where uh, Amber walked in and she asked a question. She said, hey, interesting getting a pistol. And always the right answer is outside of um, uh, most gun stores who are trying to pitch the sell is tell me the, the distinct reason why you want that handgun. Mm-hmm. And people always pimp me and they're like, well, Mike, you said this, this gun was the right gun. I'm like, listen, I have a hundred guns and each one of those guns serves a distinct purpose. Even guns that don't, like my Luger right. that I'll never use, but it's a, a historical memorabilia. But each gun that I have has a different facet and there's not one all be all solution. Now, if you have a budget and there's constraints, yes, I can point you in the right direction. The first question is, why do you need to use a gun? Right. What is the gun's purpose? Is it home defense versus everyday carry self-defense? Mm-hmm. Is it for sports shooting? Is it for recreational shooting, shooting with your kid in the backyard? All different guns mm-hmm. and all different answers. The second thing I do is I always get uh, the person's size of their hand. Mm-hmm. And typically if it's in person, then it's comparatively to mine, which I have pretty yeah, large hands. hands. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's big like hands. It's like a big, big thing of bananas. It's just yeah. like, like huge bananas, like weird, weird shaped bananas. Weird bananas. Yeah. yeah. I got this weird spread too between the camera. I can see that. It's like between, do you have that? Guys who are creative, actually, there's a genetic, it's like the feet thing. Is it really? Oh, yeah. It's huh. a whole thing. That's it's a line of DNA. So I do that because the reason I want to know your hand size is because my recommendation for you in pistol has to do with your hand size. Yeah. A lot of guys default will be subcompact. Yeah. They'll say, you need to get a subcompact because that carries better. Mm-hmm. Well, I know because I used to do the job, I carried a Glock 17. Mm-hmm. And guess what? For my hand size... That's a perfect gun size for yeah. me to carry all over the world. Mm-hmm. Now, you take that and scale it down to 19, not shaving that much off, but again, smaller compact. Glock 43 is an extreme mm-hmm. because there's a big difference between a 43 and its subcompact size and a Glock 17 and its full size. Yep. So I recommend mostly single action only pistols because I want the ability to pull the trigger around in the chamber and make it go boom. Mm-hmm. Simplifying again, uh, the conditioning that you would need when you pull your gun in stress and in a fight or flight potential scenario where you're sympathetic and you're trying to survive mm-hmm. um, versus like the technical things that the 1911 guys will tell you, like, this is the only way. I, I kind of know some of the reasons why the Colt Commander or full-size 45 ACP were the solutions. Because back then at 900 feet per second, and, and with, with whatever you're using compared to 45 ACP, the foot pounds of energy were there. Now with the synthetic bonded ammo right. at, at whatever the manufacturer is in self-defense is a, is a comparable, if not superior, mm-hmm. a superior external ballistic round, terminal ballistic round. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at terminal ballistics, now we're kind of meeting this threshold. I want simple action pistols that I go click, it goes boom. And then uh, it's durable and reliable. Yep. Typically for me, that's clock. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of SIG too. I, got, mm-hmm. I like the guys that work at SIG, uh, whether it's the uh, Lindsay's or the Kyle's uh, lambs of the world, or Dan Horner as well. That gives me full confidence that if I buy a SIG, I have a 320X carry out of the box or, or 365, it's going to be the right pistol for, for the carry. But again, my nightstand gun, SIG P220, mm-hmm. full size 45 ACP, 
with a Deo Presso Lee Bear uh, uh, crest on top of it because I was giving it to me uh, by my team in 05 right. uh, as a, given, a going away present, but also for self-defense, the perfect pistol has a light on it. Mm-hmm. Completely different than the one I'm carrying in my waistband, which happens to be in my fanny pack sitting right there. And it's a six shot revolver, right? Uh, synthetic modded ammo. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because it's got a long trigger pull. I don't have to have it in a holster and it's in my fanny pack. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could work that wheel gun uh, like it was my job because it is. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I, you, you put out the differences in the, the lifestyle in which you're choosing that, you know, we'll call it pistol or whatever it is. So it's, are you choosing an everyday carry? Are you choosing it for home defense? Are you choosing it for recreation? And what type of recreation? Uh, I get this. I get this question a lot. So I have the same type of answer, which is I'm a Glock 43 everyday carry guy. That's what I carry every day. So it's in my fanny pack with you know one of those Terran Tactical extensions. Sorry to everybody that but that's <laughs> what? what I use. Yeah, it's because it's aluminum. I like it. It's you know it is what it is, right? Uh, and that's but I got a base have, plate piece, right? Yeah, it's just yeah, a base yeah. plate, yeah. two round plus extender. Two. Yeah. yeah, it's a plus two. But I got to have a light, right? So I. I I like having a light on everything and it has a laser because my wife is not as proficient as I am. So in case that my wife needs to utilize that pistol, it also has a zero laser on it. So mm-hmm. if she pulls it out and has to use it, uh, she can use the laser. It's fine. Like she's used to that. And honestly, when you, you can cross train, that's what I use. Uh, what's on my nightstand is an STI, right? So I have a little bit you know, I've got a big window on it. So it's got the little Is it an Delta open gun? Point. You that? have an open gun with a pro timer? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> it's got a comp on it, a 20 round mag. You know, Kaza running around it's got, the house. you know, a, 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 what is that? An X300 surefire <laughs> that'll light up the fucking sky, you know? So it's like, yeah, but I've got more loom. I've got a Delta point on it, 20 rounds, right? So it's the same thing. It's at home. I've got 20 rounds, bigger light, you know, a Delta point on it every day. It's smaller, smaller pistol size. I can slide it into my waistband. It's got a little one of those little clips on the side. You know what I prefer? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm like you. What I prefer is like I don't want to be burdened with a full size Glock every day. I fucking don't. Like yeah. I don't want to carry a full size Glock every yeah. day. And also, the majority of the scenarios I'm going to find myself in statistically, I will be able to deal with whatever problem set domestically is presented to me with a a Glock 43. Like I fully believe, like I've had to, to pull my pistol three times here in the States, yep. here on my facility with typically people that have either broken in, they've found themselves here, you know, on the weekends in the back, but it's always been here. It's always been on, you know, here in Salt Lake, we've got a, uh, it's, I mean, there's uh there's a bit of a homeless problem uh, and a bit of a, a breaking and entering at times. We, we, we don't, we don't have a, the uh, we don't live in the greatest area for black rifle copy. It's a fire base. Yeah, yeah, it's a fire base, right? Yeah. So three times, but what I've told people is the 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 number one deterrent that you can use is not shooting someone. It's actually carrying it because just having the ability to ensure that people understand that you're deadly serious about utilization of a weapon to get yourself out of a situation will deter them from any advancement most of the time. It really does. It's a deterrent. So It mitigates risk. It mitigates yeah. risk. Yeah. Just carrying it mitigates it. Because one, I'm going to try not to be a... Uh, I'm not going to try to be a statistic. So obviously, 
you know, I'm, I've been exposed to the reality of life. So I understand bad things can happen. And I also find myself here in this building at all times of night. I'm here at two or three o'clock in the morning. I'm the person that responds. If the security alarm goes off, I live, you know, 15 minutes away. So it's easy for me to show up. Uh, so for me, I, it's a real situation for me to be able to say, listen, you might have to pull, depending on your pattern of life and what you do, you might have to pull a weapon on somebody. But most of the time, it's not going to end in a shooting. Like statistically, even I think I read, and I don't, I don't think the FBI actually tracks uh, the, these data points, but I think the number of shootings referencing actually how many times legal gun owners have actually had to show their weapon, it deters something like 90 plus percent of any violent uh, violent exchanges between a criminal and somebody that's carrying a gun. It deters way more criminal offenses than it than than the shootings themselves. So it's like something like 10x, right? It's fucking crazy to think that just by carrying something, one, you can be more confident that you can deal with the situation. And two, it will deter violence from happening. You'll you won't statistically have to use it. When I say you won't have to use it, I'm putting our, our, myself into a category of, of data points that are saying 99% of the people that carry firearms specifically every day don't have to use them. That's what I'm, that's what I'm referring to. I'm not saying you'll never have to do it. Please don't put me on that. I'm saying it's a deterrent. Uh, and if you talk to most of the, and you talk to a ton of police, legal gun owners that have you know their concealed carry permits, I think they are the most law-abiding portion of the American citizenry that we have. Like statistically, it's it's like overwhelmingly these people don't commit crimes. They don't even fucking speed. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I'm like, yeah. why would we not want more legal gun owners out there that are carrying concealed and then taking part in advanced training? To me, it just doesn't hold water in the entire gun gun conversation, especially because now we're going into this conversation of gun legislation, gun confiscation, and all these things. I'm like, I don't understand it. Yeah. I, I really don't understand how you can target a specific demographic of people that are overwhelmingly proven to be law-abiding citizens and then say, we're going to criminalize your behavior, which yeah. is complete insanity to me. I wanted to actually get your perspective on that, which is, do you think, one, are you following gun legislation stuff? Are you following it pretty closely? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two, do you, think that they're, uh, do you think that they're going to pass some big gun legislation pieces in the next few months? And if so, what do you think they're going to be? So I, I am involved. In, fa- in fact, our sheriff in uh, Wasatch County um, has proposed an ordinance mm-hmm. allowing people to carry concealed um, and then, and then making it a, to a sanctuary right. County. There's a difference between like the, uh, the signaling of that via a statement and then the creating of an ordinance or law to protect your citizens as they're rolled up by, you know, the police department mm-hmm. or by a sheriff who has to, you know, follow the letter of the law. Right. Um, So on May 12th, actually, there's a vote that's happening, um, which might be around the time this is dropped. Right. But that happens in Heber City, and there's three council members who currently are opposed to it in some form or fashion. I'm trying to find out more details because 
I'm going to try to motivate them to do it because if not, I'm going to go full bore on making sure they don't get reelected right. um, as members of the city council because they're affecting people's lives. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. This idea of criminalizing law-abiding citizens where we're talking about um, using examples of shootings, of criminal activity where people have obviously broken the law as the example of how to create more laws against law-abiding citizens where we know criminals are only going to be empowered by those laws being created because now they know that the demographic or the population has less capability because they're Mm law-abiding. So if they put out a law, the overwhelming majority of people will say, I'm going to follow the law and there'll only be victims. They'll be exploited. Mm -hmm. For me, not advocating for the breaking of laws, but I'll run that line because I'm not, for example, going to walk into an institution that has alcohol as a determining factor if I'm going to carry because the likelihood of there being somebody who goes high and right, Mm -hmm. who who is on the fringe because he's intoxicated, that's going to endanger my family who's trying to have a good meal is higher. Right. So again, a, a, a law that's created to only hurt law-abiding citizens. And so the overwhelming majority of these laws, by the way, are never enforced unless compounding charges on bad people in the first place. Right. So people always ask me, well, Mike, should I carry because... Where I'm at, I can't carry. Are you a law-abiding citizen? Yes. So then what do you have to worry about in being searched and seized because you're a law-abiding? Can you think of a scenario? Like, I don't know, maybe a traffic stop? Well, you're running that risk. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to accept that risk. So the the thing I think is going to happen is one, they already came out weak. Mm -hmm. You know, the Biden and uh, as, as he came out said, we're going to go after a couple of things. He came after the ghost gun, yeah. came after the pistol brace and, 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 you know, the, inve- the investigation even aspect of potentially the red f- flag laws. Dude, that's, that's mind boggling, right? I mean, I, I would, I would be gunless and I would be breaking the law because I, 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 I've been diagnosed with PTSD because I've been to war nine times. Right. Uh, in fact, I had no choice in that. Right. Hey, psychologist, um, I've been to war nine times. Okay, we're going to ha- go ahead and chalk you up for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, TBI as well. Uh, uh, roger that, right. I guess. Um, and if you come after my guns, I- I'm not declaring war on anybody. Right. I'm just telling you, look, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I mind my own business and I want government to stay their asses out of my business. And when I when it comes to gun control, um, I-, I don't think there should be any control of guns. If you're a law-abiding citizen, law-abiding citizens don't break laws right? because they're law-abiding. So if you're looking at sovereignty, it's those people who are doing right always that we need to focus on protecting and mm-hmm. insulating. And then criminals who are intent because they are doing it, they need to be penalized more. They need to be put in prison longer or whatever it is, focus on them. Right. Take the attention off of us. And somebody asked me before, and like, do you believe in any form of gun control? No. If, if Billy Bob next door wants to own a tank, if Sean Whalen wants to buy a tank, which is, he's, he's trying to buy a tank. I'm sure he would. It, buy a tank. Yeah. Because if you have the right range, if you're following the protocol, guess what? Big Gov is getting that tax. Um, you have to go through procedures for permits and everything else. Follow that and shoot your tank safely. Because the, the unspoken truth of all this 
is a government who understands its population is armed and willing to protect itself against oppression and tyranny is not going to fuck with it. So uh, more the merrier. You want a javelin and you got a javelin range you go to and then that starts a business and a whole uh, commerce for javelin uh, family picnics. <laughs> go fucking shoot javelins, right? Do what you got to do because I, I know what happens in foreign countries that me and you have been to, that balance of power is created just by the formalities or call it informalities of understanding that these people are armed and we're not going to fuck with them. Mm -hmm. We're just going to continue to go after bad guys, which we should focus our attention on. And somehow this attention that's focused on, especially you guys, white people, like white guys, like all of a sudden you're the enemy. I, I don't get it. I, I don't understand. That. I'm a Jew. So just so everybody knows... I fall into a white guy category, but <laughs> I think it's a it's it's crazy to me because right now we're entering in this conversation. I've I've obviously listened to it, and it's 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 so interesting to me that people always want to take something from other people, like they they want to take something. So, uh, and I look and listen to these conversations. So it's it's. It's it's irrelevant to the political side, right? And I think I think people are are really interested in forfeiting their liberties because they don't utilize them, right? So if you're not a gun owner, of course you're like, fuck it, I don't care. Like, do whatever you want to the gun owners. And then you have a a, a very galvanized portion of that, we'll call it non-gunner gun owners that are like you, you get the passive section and then you have the active non-gun owner that are anti-gun. And they're actively participating in trying to take the guns from the gun owners, mm -hmm. right? They want to take something from someone else because of some perceived non-data-driven threat that they believe in, right? It's like the, uh, the, the, the double maskers outside, right? So you got people that are wearing their fucking two masks as they're running on the trails in Wasatch. There's zero data that says that you can get COVID outside, even from other people, especially when you're keeping social social distance and all these other things. But you've got a section of our population that given the opportunity, they would love to force everybody in America to wear two masks and a fucking face shield 24 hours a day. Forever. And they would, forever. They, that's, that's the way they would live their lives. And so out of fear you have a, we'll call it a more militant section of each one of these populations. And, and, it's, and it's also on the religious perspective of our country. So this is where things get dicey. And this is where conservatives start to really piss me off because they're in bed with the Christian right. And the Christian right is just as active in wanting to participate in taking rights away from other sections of our population. And that's when I say, you guys really need to get your shit together. Smaller government means smaller government. It means less interference. It means the government can't tell you who you're going to marry. You can just marry whoever the fuck you want to marry. That's the way it should work. And when we get into this tit for tat, and that's what happens is, I think you have one section, especially on the conservative side, they've been in this active, uh, an active participant in the conversation of taking other people's rights. They say, this is a Judeo-Christian country and you shouldn't be able to marry, you know, men shouldn't be able to marry men or whatever the fuck it is that they want to come up with because Jesus said that you shouldn't marry other men, mm -hmm. whatever the fuck it yeah. is. Okay. Well, when you tell the government to enforce that on other people, those other people will then return the favor. 
and say, yeah, well, we think that you shouldn't be able to carry your guns. So when I look at this, I say, why do you guys give so much? Why do you care so much about what other people are doing? And I think one of the big problems that we have is this left, right, tit for tat. This is a game I'm trying to win and I want to take something from somebody else. So I want to use the federal system in order to enforce what I believe is the ethical standard because of my religious background or because of my political affiliation. Because honestly, I think you know, wokeness is one of those things that's turned into more of a cult affiliation. It's not really, it's not founded in reality. It's something that you could almost say is a religion at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or disorder. Or a disorder, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And that's why I'm like, I'm trying to turn this entire conversation into, like the national conversation is left or right. Let's just be less concerned with what the fuck our neighbors are doing unless it's really impeding on your safety, then you should be like, yeah, okay, you can't put your javelin range you know, in your backyard when you live on a quarter acre in the middle of the city. Why? Because it's really fucking dangerous and you might kill my kids, right? Mm-hmm. But outside of that, you're, you know, from my perspective, uh, and maybe I'm wrong. I could, I'm probably, like I said, I'm, I'm often wrong, never in doubt. But I think... The gun rights conversation and part of this is it's predicated on conservatives have wanted to take things from other people. They really have. And I think that's where we don't have at times a, a, an ethical leg to stand on because people are saying, well, you guys are you know, enforcing or trying to enforce different laws that ultimately affect whether or not we would say traditionally liberal aspects. So marijuana is another good one. Right, conservative states have loved to outlaw marijuana across the United States for recreation or medicinal use, uh, and then liberal cities and states have been able to legalize it because they've wanted to, uh, b- we'll call it, pull back their liberty. And I think that's great. You know, liberal cities have said we want to marry who we want to marry, right? And conservatives have kept them from marrying who they want to marry. They've kept them from their pot and they've kept them from marrying who they want to marry. Well, there's the animus that I think is created along those lines where people have continued to try to enforce their ethics on other sections of the population. I think if anything I try to do is just tell people like, can you just not try to enforce what you believe (laughs) is appropriate on other people and just live and let live. So it's like, you want to marry who you want to marry. You want to smoke some pot. Fuck. For the most part, I don't care even if you want to do what it is that you're doing uh, outside of a few things I can think of like right off the top of my head, like you can't exploit children. Like that's obvious, but there's very few things I think that you should be restricted from doing as an individual, as long as it doesn't affect somebody else. But how do you get, because I know you think very similar to me. Do you get the, um, do you get a lot of, we'll call it the, the religious, more religious right uh, in the, the preparedness crowd? Do you see a lot of more of the religious right over there? I, I, I don't know if I, I call it religious. It, I probably call it just the right fringe. Right fringe. Yeah, yeah. right right wing extremist. I okay. mean, I just recently, I think I had a message last night uh, from a guy who was um, ripping me a new one. Right. Um, actually took the time to Facebook message me, which my account's hard to find. Um, but Facebook messaged me and called me a coward and all this stuff for starting American contingency. 
and that getting out there and going to all 50 states during COVID and, and spreading the word of Amcon, which is uh, for yeah. me, a movement to just get off your ass. And right. it's on you, by the way, it's not on me. Right. Um, I'm not coming in a little bird to save your ass. It's, it's, it's motivating and educating you to make moves on your own, stand up in your own community, say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take care of our own people, neighbors being neighbors again. And I think what you're talking about has to do with a, a lot of amplifying through social media, all these um, cultural issues that people, it lies, it lies dormant in people. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a virus. And then if you look at the social aspects and the way that virus takes and evolves into what it becomes, it has a mechanism to do that because of the platforms that we have in social media. So mm-hmm. they think about something. So you might think, oh, well, I'm a, you know, there's this thing called anti-racism where you can't be not racist because that's anti-racist. So you're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? right? You're, everybody's racist. Mm-hmm. It's inherent. So then you have people who are woke using their platforms to communicate about it. And I, all, I, I see it all as, as white noise. Um, and no pun intended. It's yeah. just a lot of noise. In the '60s, the the start point, and this could be debated, but one of the start points historically of the entire gun control movement starting happened when Black Panthers decided to go into Sacramento yeah. and and petition and protest their civil rights right. with guns. Shotguns, rifles. Yep. They did that. Yep. And guess who the governor was? Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And Ronald Reagan put it all out. We're, we're going to start creating laws and organi- organizing. And then that translated into Texas doing the same. And the next thing you know, all these gun laws started coming out. And then we're like, wait a minute, what, this is what are we doing here? Because now we're taking and suppressing our own guns. But you said something exactly right. It's tit for tat. So now it's just war, right? Mm-hmm. Here's what I realized. You can't compete with any of that shit. Right. The loser who texted me last night, who took the time, who's a right-wing extremist in, in the way that he vocalized, I don't know if he is, but right. the way he came across, I perceive that. You're going to have leftists, you're going to have right-wing extremists, you're going to have a whole bunch of fringe losers who don't understand the gravity of reality because they don't fucking live in it. They live in this fucking cell phone. Right. So go live your life outside of this. And that guy who messaged me, I felt bad for him. <clears throat> I felt yeah. sorry for him. I went... You know what? That dude needs to be bitch slap in a breakout course ran by Phil Craft because that might wake him not to the woke culture, but to the reality that he's living a tangible life that he's missing out on because he's so tethered to this fucking device. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to fucking crush business, make a lot of fucking money, build empires, build media projects that bring conservative values from my perspective, from your perspective, back into the households. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of fucking land and I'm going to fuck off with my family and homestead while all these bitches are talking about this. Cause I don't give a fuck. I know where I belong in this world and it's with my family. I don't care about what culture, I don't care about this amplification of virtue signaling through whatever the, the LeBron James of the world could eat a dick. I hate him. <laughs> fuck, who gives a fuck? You throw a ball into a net because of the liberties that were fought and sacrifice for in blood, sweat, and tears by Americans who are willing to stand up, including African-Americans who are willing to stand up and fight for the country. That's why you could, you could tweet as you shoot the fucking ball and live your million-dollar lifestyle 
driving your fucking Lambo, talking shit about everything good in this fucking world is because of all those sacrifices. And I know there are many Americans who listen to this who get that. Yeah. I'm going to fucking be drinking Black Rifle coffee. I'm going to be fucking teaching people about preparedness and I'm going to be homesteading with my fucking family where I belong. Nowhere else do I belong. Not on a stage, not on a platform, uh, not in a fucking political scene. Fuck that, man. I, like, it, it aggravates me, but now it refines more mission-driven purpose and I know exactly, I could see it. It's clairvoyant. Mm-hmm. Me and you, it know exactly our past because of all the things that are happening. And, and, and when you go through that and you experience those trials and tribulations kind of come in full spectrum and full circle, living a life of war and then taking advantage of the convenience of freedom, we, we have a better understanding of the gravity of our lives and have no time to piss it away with fucking losers. I, I want to be fire striking uh, magnesium with my fucking kids worried about my future, which is tangible and it, it smells and it feels and it loves fuck all that. Like, fuck this, you know? (laughs) Oh man, Mike, that's great. Free range American buddy. I appreciate it. That's a great place for us to end. What else you got? You got got, anything else? Well, I just want to mention, you got some rundowns. I've never done notes before, but uh, TBI is taking over my life. So, um, coffee helps by the way. Yeah, it does. Um, Proven to help. You know, I've read a case study about caffeine and how it helps stimulate. Really? Yeah, there's right. alcinity yeah. on stimulating the mind. But a lot of the issues, like, um, I don't know if you know this, uh, they try to prescribe it to me. Um, Adderall, I will never take Adderall because I deployed with it and saw yeah. it distribute was lies. Provigil, caffeine, all things that are being used to help people with TBI because of all the cognitive fucking mm-hmm. errors and glitches in, in, in our, our brains. Um, I wanted to mention Kyle Lamb's foundation. I love that guy. Great fucking American. Great, great American. Um, who called me and was like, good on you for focusing on the positive. A lot of getting affirmation from a Kyle Lamb in the world saying, dude, all this shit that's going on, focus on the positive. Um, he started the stay in fight, stay in the fight foundation to help people, not just first responders, not military, but people stemming from an experience that he had that was private in his family mm-hmm. uh, where he had to come out of pocket um, and he's just helping people. That's on uh, vikingtackets.com yep. where you can go to the Stay in the Fight Foundation tab and, and uh, hit that up if we can maybe get that in the notes. I don't Fuck know. Fuck yeah, we can get there. Um, and then lastly, I want to ask you a question because um, um, Amber had asked this question and she said the favorite whole bean for French press coffee. What's your favorite whole bean for French press? Uh, I don't drink a lot of French press. I don't like it. What the fuck is French press? It's just that big glass jar that you plunge the thing oh, down. Okay. Um, I use that downrange. Yeah. I, I used to use it quite a bit. It creates a really dirty cup of coffee because yeah. it the, the grounds sit in the bottom of it. and With all the grit. Yeah. And I don't use a lot of French press, but... Uh, the best French press coffee that I have, if you're using proper to wa- water to coffee ratios, which I, uh, French press is typically going to be 12 to 1. Uh, 1 meaning the coffee, 12 meaning the, the water on your weight or your scale. Um, you're going to do really coarse, really coarse coffee because if you do it fine, it's going to create a kind of a, a sludge and it's going to ultimately just be a really, really too strong of a cup. So 12 to 1. Uh, ratio, really coarse. And I use uh, Just Black is what I like to use. I used to, I I use Just Black for just about everything. So pour over in the Chemex, 
French press. Mm. I use AK-47, obviously, in the, the espresso. Uh, and then I, I drink the coffees from the uh, exclusive coffee subscription pretty much every morning. So those are the smaller runs. But yeah, that's... that's smaller, the, more intimate runs. Mm-hmm. So wait, wait, micro wait. lots. So the micro lots for, you're calling it the premier? Uh, exclusive coffee. Exclusive. Club. Yeah. So it's limited. I'm assuming it's limited. And yeah, I only do, I only do like a couple thousand pounds of that a month. I need to get on that train, man. I know. Sign me up. I'll sign me, I'll sign me up today. Okay, done. We'll do it. Yeah. That coffee that you made before this, that's probably going to give me anal leakage in a good way. Perfect. Yeah. If if there's such a thing. Dude, this is amazing, by the way. You like that? Yeah, this is amazing. This is one of the coolest things I've ever received, if not the coolest. Uh, This is awesome. I think, no, this is, this is super cool. Like this is one of the coolest things I think anybody's ever given me. Uh, Mike Lover, it's always great. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Love you, buddy. Love you, man.